I think too often uh, some of the narrative is, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio sending out a tweet in BC about LNG or Mark Ruffalo and blockade lines. And what you don't see is, is business is a universal language at the end of the day, whether you're First Nation, whether you're Canadian or American. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by my fabulous partner in crime, Chris Sands at the Wilson Center. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Great, Scotty. How are you doing? You're looking great. You too, my friend, even though it's a podcast and we see each other, but people only hear us. You can take our word for it. We look great. And so do our guests. Uh, I'm excited about our conversation, Chris, today because I think one of the public services that Canusa Street Podcast provides is we help people get smarter. And there is a topic of planetary importance, um, the transition to net zero emissions, how we get there, that that we talk about from time to time. And there's a new element on that topic uh, that we're going to explore today. And I don't know if everybody knows about it, but it's this idea of a carbon hub. What the heck is a carbon hub? We're going to talk about that today. We're going to see what's possible. And our guests, um, I'm really honored to have them. And how about I turn it over to you, Chris, to properly introduce our distinguished guests? Oh, sure. Fantastic. I'm glad to do it. We have three guests today, and uh, they're each coming from a different direction. So we're going to get a very holistic view of, of this issue. Kate Chisholm is coming to us from Capital Power. She leads Capital Power's strategic and sustainability planning and reporting, market forecasting and analytics, regulatory, government relations, internal audit, ethics, compliance, shareholder engagement, community investment, and communications functions. It is amazing that she has found the time to talk to us, but she is uh, the chief legal and sustainability officer for Capital Power, and she's been responsible for legal matters affecting Capital Powers, all of Capital Powers activities since its inception in 2009. So welcome, Kate. Uh, we also have Adam Chalkley, who comes to us from Enbridge. He's the director of low carbon development at Enbridge, where he previously served as executive advisor. Um, he had worked prior uh, to uh, Enbridge as a lawyer for Burnett, Duckworth and Palmer, uh, and then entered the construction and industry Energy Industries as Vice President uh, of Strategy at FT Services and the President of Heavy Lift Crane Services. So great background and, and welcome, Adam. And uh, we also have with us Chief Billy Morin. In 2015, at the age of 28, uh, Chief Billy Morin was elected as the youngest chief in modern history of the Enoch Cree Nation, a position that he still holds today. He went to high school at St. Francis Xavier and is a graduate of the Civil Engineering and Technology Bachelor of Technology Management programs at Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. So this is a very learned and technical group. I'm a little intimidated, Scotty, but uh, hopefully they'll be able to teach us both quite a bit. Uh, well, yeah, it's always hard to teach you something, Professor Sands. So let's see if we can do that. Thank, thank you, everyone, for joining us. I want to start with you, Chief. Uh, and I want to... Uh, I, I introduced this idea of carbon hub um, as a way to reduce carbon emissions, but let's 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 take a step back and figure out how everybody knows each other. I know uh, that you and Adam know each other, Adam from Enbridge, but you were just saying hello to Kate for the first time. So maybe, Chief, you could talk to us a little bit about what brings you uh, into this conversation and what your relationship um, and partnership has been like with Enbridge 
and then we'll describe, we'll ask, uh, Adam and Kate to describe how, how it is, how it is the three of us, the three of you, I should say, are at this dance together. And what is the dance? Well, uh, thank you, Scotty. And thank you, Chris, for the, uh, gracious, uh, introduction and happy to be here today. Uh, just chief of the Enoch Cree Nation. So Enoch Cree Nation is just like any other First Nation in Canada or Indian Reserve, maybe in the States. And uh, my nation is in close proximity uh, right across the street from the city of Edmonton. So Edmonton is about 1 million people, capital of Alberta. I'm sure people know that in general. And uh, my nation's right across the street. It's a nation of about 2,700 people. And uh, I, I also sit as the a representative of our First Nations uh, capital investment partnership. So that's another uh, my nation and another four Indian reserves or First Nations in the local area. And uh, we formed a strategic partnership to go after industry um, investment and equity uh, in the capital region. So Edmonton itself is a huge uh, refining industry-based, um, uh, has a huge uh, refining industry-based uh, sector and economy. And uh, for the last 50 or 100 years, we felt the lo as local First Nations, we didn't get our fair share of partnership in that. So, you know, little by little over the age of reconciliation, over the age of um, I don't know more. Um, uh, in the last about, I'd say about 10, 15 years, First Nations have been given um, the opportunity through various mechanisms, whether it be governments or private and uh, uh, private equity, or just being welcome to the table for these for these huge partnerships and projects. Um, we've been getting into partnerships with uh, multiple stakeholders across multiple industries, and uh, usually in the past, First Nations would be given. One percent or small stuff like let's clear let's clear cut for the TMX pipeline. Um, let's cut down some trees or maybe get the janitorial contract. And uh, for the latest um, project and initiative when it comes to ESG in Alberta and Canada um, in particular, and it's the carbon capture um, request for a proposal from the Alberta government. Um, the Alberta government did a great thing and they, they scored it and they said, you know, if you have First Nations uh, partners, you're you're gonna you're going to get a you're going to get a better score at the end of the day. And so I got to hand it over to uh, credit where credit's due, uh, Adam and Enbridge. Um, you know, they've done uh, some great uh, initial, I would say, um, relationship buildings on Northern Gateway in the past, which didn't unfortunately go through. Um, Adam's going to probably talk a little bit about uh, the line going out, uh, out through Saskatchewan and some of the reclamation work there and partnerships with First Nations. But when they approached us to go after this new, very good industry, uh, carbon capture ESG, um, we said right away, it evolved really quick that we wanted up to 50% equity. Now, I, I, I those details are still in the works, but Adam and, uh, and Enbridge, I got to hand it to them. They came to the table and they took a really short while and they, they made it known that like, we're, re we're really here to partner with these local First Nations to make this work. We want to do something unprecedented. And so, it's not just the five percent or the one percent or the um, the uh, uh, the small contracts anymore. It is full equity partnership, and we ask First Nations through um, various government arms, loan back guarantees, our own private source equity, um, are able to participate in two hundred fifty um, five hundred million dollar projects now as full equity partners. But we rely upon Adam and uh, you know, quite frankly, Capital Power, who I'm also looking forward to having this partnership with. Of building up the technical capacity, but also also participating in that equity portion. So just a little bit from me on how uh, we got to the table. Well, I love hearing that. And I it's, first of all, good that you had the vision to play a, a real and meaningful role as a true partner. And good that the government built incentives 
that that encourage the kind of direction for for these public private partnerships. So, Adam, maybe we'll turn to you. Talk to us if you would a little bit about what Enbridge is up to, um, and how how you got to know the chief, uh, and what this what this partnership with Capital Power is all about. Sure. Thanks, Scotty. Um, yeah, just a little bit of background about Enbridge. We're a leading North American infrastructure company. We move about thirty percent of the crude oil produced in North America today. We transport about 20% of the natural gas consumed in the U.S., and we own uh, North America's third largest gas utility by consumer count. We're also a very early investor in renewable energy, including um, a substantial offshore wind portfolio. As, uh, as Chief Morin noted, um, obviously the, the COVID crisis was a catalyst for energy transition or energy transformation, and we knew early on that um, that, that things were gonna change in the world around us and we needed to be a part of that journey. Um, not only decarbonizing our own footprint um, and along with many other com- companies in 2020, we announced ESG goals. That included uh, reducing GHG and emissions intensities from our operations by 35% in 2030 and to get to net zero by 2025. And so we're looking at both kind of our, what we can do in terms of our emissions profiles, but also we view ourselves as uh, an infrastructure provider to support other people's uh, energy projects. And so, so that's really where the carbon storage hub idea came into play. Um, it is there to support the decarbonization of others' projects. So to the extent um, that other industrial emitters are looking at doing carbon capture and installing that infrastructure onto their plants, uh, we are looking to provide the transportation in and sequestration services. And when we say sequestration, what we're talking about is, is injecting it deep into deep underground into geological formations that are capable of accepting those CO2 volumes and permanently keeping them there due to the, the nature of the, the geology down there. So with that in mind, um, we, we, we actually, and we can talk about this a bit as we get into the podcast, um, this is not a new area for us. There is some history here with Capital Power and others. And we'd looked at doing this, pro, you know, something similar in this area over a decade ago in something called Project Pioneer. So we, we knew we had a head start here and we wanted to kind of um, re- revive some work that we've done over a decade ago. But what we did differently this time is um, we thought that it was very important to, to get early indigenous engagement on this. So um, when we talk about ESG, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, importance and emphasis put on the E, but I, I, you know, I think this is important to note the S is still also a very important uh, to us. And I think it's important to getting projects done. So I first connected with Chief Morin in November of 2021. And it's interesting, we were, we were meeting to talk for a coffee at the Canadian Energy Executives Association annual conference in Banff. And there was only two headline items on the agenda for the conference that year. It wasn't about how much crude oil they were gonna produce or what the price was gonna be or what the growth of the sector was gonna be. The two main topics on the agenda that year were uh, emissions, climate change, and indigenous participation in project development and the importance of indigenous uh, participation in, in getting projects across the line. So I kind of felt like we're 
we're we're going down the right road when you know this was what was on the agenda for my first uh meeting with chief morin and so um we met there um it uh you know we had uh we had uh i guess one of the 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 reservations i had or the anxieties of going into that meeting was geez like this is pretty conceptual uh the old way of doing things was to to fully bake the idea and then go and approach an indigenous partner and say hey uh we're doing this would you like to come along and i think we we approached it quite differently here which was hey we're thinking about doing this would you like to be a part of the journey and help define it and that's really where the conversations uh started between the chief and i and quickly evolved to include um three other treaty six first nations in the immediate vicinity including the uh the alexander nation the alexis nation the paul first nation as well as including the um black saint anne metis association or community in those conversations and so fast forward um you know we've been building the relationship and uh and came to um terms and and in terms of how we could move forward and and do this as a partnership so very excited to to be doing this and I, I i'll go out on the limb and say uh i'm very proud of how we've engaged with the nations on this and and we think that this can serve as a um a model for indigenous engagement on project development moving forward i love that story of how you met adam because uh there's something that's magical about banff alberta if people haven't been there google it right away it's one of the most beautiful places I've been. And um, I have to say, I was in Banff last summer at a conference speaking, and I knew that that the organizers were taking good care of me because they seated me next to Chief Willie Littlechild. And if you know Chief Willie Littlechild, he's legendary. He's my mentor. He's my hero. So we have that in common, Chief Warren. And if you see him, please, please send him my regards. I spent the rest of that conference basically um, sitting next to him every chance I could uh, and recruited him to the advisory board of the Canadian American Business Council. He is just a spectacular leader. And anyway, it all happened in BAM. So Adam, we have that in common and Billy. Um, And so just while we're talking about the importance of relationships, I should disclose to our listeners uh, that that at the Canadian American Business Council, we work with not only Chief Littlechild, but also Enbridge and also Capital Power. And, and I've known Capital Power for years uh, and had the great opportunity to work with them here in Washington, D.C. So, um, you know, relationships make the world go round. So, Kate, uh, we're going to turn it over to you. We're thrilled to have you and wonder if you can talk about uh, Capital Power's journey on on to net zero and how it is uh you're you've come to work with enbridge and with um and with the chief and the nation well uh, thank you for that uh and thank you for having me uh it's a privilege to be with you all uh, i i should say I, I i would sure like to hear more about uh uh the last topic because i think one of the assumptions that we had made was that uh, we had to have more uh, sort of cement around the edges of our project before we uh, got into deep discussions with First Nations about it. And so I've already learned something here today, and uh, uh, I look forward to learning more. But I mean, in terms of the history, as Adam said, uh, we uh, partnered with Enbridge on Project Pioneer, which was a CCUS, uh, big CCUS project on a on a coal unit in Alberta. 
And prior to that, that was our second project. Uh, prior to that, uh, Capital Power had done another big CCUS coal project by itself. Um, and we were impressed with the technical viability of both of those projects, but in the end, they both proved to be uneconomic given circumstances at the time. So totally doable from every perspective, except we couldn't make money. Uh, we would be throwing shareholder money away to do them. And so uh, they both got mothballed indefinitely. Um, and um, but 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 when I say mothballed, CCUS has been bubbling up for capital power for a very, very long time. We've as a large final emitter of uh, greenhouse gases, we've we've been paying uh, carbon tax since 2007. Alberta was the first province in the in the country of Canada to have a carbon tax, and so um, we have been working on this for that reason. But also because we believe that uh, we, in order to make our combined 2050 net zero goals we are going to really have to hit the 2030 goal. We think that if the world misses the 2030 goal, 2050 isn't going to happen. But 2030 is really only eight years away. That's not very long sort of in when you're talking about major infrastructure. And so um, we are focused on using currently technical vi uh, technically viable technology to meet the 2030 goal. And then we have a plan beyond that. Uh, and we're working on some nascent technology to get us from 2030 to 2050. Um, Capital Power has a, a net, net zero 2050 goal, and we have some pretty ambitious emission reduction goals for 2030 as well. And so we've been working really, really hard on those. And um, one of the things that we've done is we have, our, we have uh, power generation facilities all over North America, which include um, natural gas, solar, and wind. And we also have uh, now uh, some batteries. We have a coal unit. Our big flagship coal unit is uh, uh, close to the you know, Cree uh, Nation's uh, uh, location. It's very close to Edmonton. And uh, it's going to be one of the last coal units in Alberta. We were told uh, that we had to get rid of it by 2030. And we've decided why wait. Let's, let's convert it to gas in 20 by 2023 so there are three big big coal units there and two of them we're going to repower which means taking the guts out of them and putting in brand new guts which will be 30 percent hydrogen ready when they're installed um, and the third one we're just going to run the old gut, guts but on natural gas instead of coal and for the two repowered units we're going to hook ccus to them and we're hoping that through this partnership uh, with uh, Enbridge and the First Nations that we will be able to have transportation for the carbon away from our site uh, in a safe way and an economic way because one of the things that we look at our corporate purpose is to decarbonize power generation in a way that's affordable and reliable for consumers uh, and we believe that um, the reliability in particular demands an ongoing role for natural gas in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan that aren't rich with hydro resources and have never built nuclear and so on. And so uh, if we're going to have to put up with natural gas over the, let's say, medium to long term, then we really have to decarbonize it. And so this is a, a really important first step. And we're very grateful 
uh, to uh, Chief Morin and his First Nations Alliance and Enbridge for helping us do this. Thanks for that, Kate. And just for our listeners who might not be um, as involved in energy and uh, environmental issues, when Kate talks about CCUS, what that that is shorthand or an acronym, which I know Chris Sands is allergic to acronyms. So it's carbon capture, utilization, and storage. So that when we talk about how do you get uh, carbon cap you know out of the atmosphere how do we transition so that so that the world can meet its sustainability goals and we can deal with climate change and all of that capturing carbon is one thing um storing it is one thing capital power has some interesting ways to utilize it too there have been some pilot projects um that maybe kate can talk about uh to actually take carbon out of the air or take it out of the smokestack, if you will, and turn it into something else that is actually beneficial um, in terms of the economy and infrastructure. So anyway, I just wanted to clarify that, Kate, just because we live and breathe these things. But uh, is there anything else you want to say about CCUS, Carbon Capture Utilization Storage, before we turn it over to Chris? You said it much better than I could, Scotty. Never in a million years. Chris, over to you. He is very good, I will say. Um, uh, So I I'm going to dig a little deeper. A lot of our, um, I think, I hope a lot of our podcast listeners will find this discussion fascinating in a couple of ways. And I want to, I want to dig into this a little bit. Um, Chief Morin, uh, maybe starting with you. So what, if, if you could, um, what makes the indigenous engagement early on in the project so remarkable? I mean, it is remarkable, certainly in Canadian history and the way these projects have been done in the past, but, but from your perspective, what makes this project different? And for listeners who are in the U.S. who may be more familiar with the relations that American governments have had with their indigenous communities, uh, maybe describe a little bit about the Canadian dynamic um, and, and what works and doesn't work about that. I think too often uh, some of the narrative is, uh, um, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio sending out a tweet in BC about LNG or Mark Ruffalo and blockade lines and, you know, uh, those have historical contexts, but uh, maybe not too often. What you don't see is is business is a universal language at the end of the day, whether you're First Nation, whether you're Canadian or American, it's a universal language. And, you know, you're going to actually find maybe outside the social media universe or the uh, media universe at this time, um, there's actually a lot more First Nations who are willing to do um, uh, business and partnership. Uh, it's I guess it's just not the sexy enough story that it is, but uh, I, I certainly think it's uh, it's a great story. So, you know, and again, in the last um, five to ten uh, five to ten years, uh, there's been so many equitable mechanisms put in, in place for First Nations to take steps. And you know, it, I think some of the story is that the regulatory regime, and certainly it has become a little bit more difficult under uh, some of the federal government. Uh, there's been a back and forth provincially between um, our, our, our NDP governments and, and the historical conservative governments. So we're in the middle of that. In the meantime, you have First Nations who um, uh, certainly there's 150 years of social justice. But again, I think the catalyst, it's been proven time and time again from some of the leading First Nations in Canada is the way to move forward is 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 through business. It truly is a universal language. So, you know, when again, you know, Canada's building TMX. Uh, they're talking about um, a few other huge projects. Uh, Adam's going to mention one going out east. Uh, I'm sure 
uh, again, like the, the local First Nations were never given that shot. And and you now you have some really entrepreneurial chiefs. Like it's not just uh, we're getting this for free. I mean, certainly I, I thank the, the uh, provincial government for um, putting in that that note. But it's not the only note. The, this thing, as uh, Kate mentioned, we have shareholders at the end of the day. All businesses have shareholders. The First Nations have to raise the capital, be real partnerships. And, you know, for a long time, companies just weren't weren't doing that. They they weren't providing the space to give us a shot at raising capital. I mean, uh, behind me, maybe the listeners can't see it, is I'm pretty proud of our First Nation, our commercial development, and it's the biggest casino. And then, you know, you got casinos across the uh, America, uh, um, First Nations and Indian casinos. But uh, we did a, a cross border, the first ever cross border bond of a uh, hundred million dollars to buy out our partner from the America when we opened our casino. So I think we've proven time and time again over the last decade that we can participate not at the 1%, 2% level, but at the higher, truly equitable uh, uh, levels. And so, you know, I'm not uh, too aware, maybe around the Fort McMurray area, uh, where the the um, um, uh, where a lot of the oil and gas uh, activity happens in Alberta nowadays, where, where First Nations are getting into partnerships uh, at this level. But uh, again, I can't, I, I can't go unstated that Enbridge said, Walk with us early on. We're not baking this cake without uh, coming to you uh, and having it baked pre. Uh, and this is where you get in or you get out. Uh, they said, here's our idea. Come in. We're welcoming you here. And, um, you know, certainly we we said we can raise the capital to do this, but let's bake the cake together. And uh, it's 50%. It's not 5%. It's, 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 maybe it's a little less than that. Maybe it's a little more than that. Mm-hmm. But the, the relationship was starting off. And the one thing I just have to note again is... Um, you know, Edmonton is is one million people, probably one one hundred thousand people within a hundred kilometers, and we represent about twenty percent of that uh, as the Fort First Nations. And you know, Kate's in downtown Edmonton right now, and I think Adam uh, Enbridge has their uh, amount of office, uh, their one of their head their head offices here. And so the market's one million people. We have to compete with the Houston's. We have to compete with Calgary. We have to compete with Vancouver, Toronto. And at the end of the day, like we're still a little bit of a small market and our niche is industry development. Uh, we we have to band together as a market, even selfishly for the capital region. I mean, Kate's, Kate's represents capital power because it's the capital of Alberta. Adam uh, had some huge numbers there of what Enbridge does. And, you know, to give us that that edge, I think you're going to need First Nations as as a little bit more of an edge. Maybe Maybe not the icing on the cake, that's the wrong term, but... We can add to the, to the to the region's success when we invest in partnerships like that. What we often hear, you know, down here is a, you know, uh, indigenous people are going to veto projects. They're, you know, or that they're just the victims of things going on. And and what you're portraying, Chief uh, Marin, is really important because it's a it's a picture of an engaged partner, not a victim, not just a blind veto, but but somebody you can you can do business with. And I think that's. That's a revelation, and I think it's really, really positive. Um, Adam, can I turn to you now? I, and partly because you know people know Enbridge around the world as a, as an oil and gas company, and the discussion for a long time has been uh, not only in Ottawa and Toronto and and whatnot, but in Vancouver, but even in the U.S. That oil and gas that's that's the old economy. Uh, it's maybe one step better than coal, but it's all on the way out and the way you talked about this project, it really is about taking that on head on and being part of the solution. Um, is that something that works across Enbridge or is that specific to this project? How are, how is the company seeing itself 
um, in what Kate was saying, sort of that transition to 2030, 2050 um, as, as, as part of the mix? Yeah, no, it's all, all great questions. I think in terms of um, energy transition or transformation, the world's still going to continue to need some level of uh, oil and gas demand across the footprint. And I'm a big believer that Canadian crude oil and North American crude oil is some of the, still some of the most ethically produced, highest ranking uh, sources of, of energy in the world. And uh, I think there's still room to improve on that. And I think we need to be a part of that solution. So it, it, it is decarbonizing the footprint across, uh, you know, so that includes opportunities for to help those producers decarbonize their operations, as well as us decarbonizing the transportation infrastructure that moves their commodities to market. In terms of what we've been doing across the footprint, um, I think I'd like to point, you know, point to uh, our line three replacement project, which was an 1100, which is an 1100 uh, mile crude oil pipeline that starts in Edmonton and uh, it travels all the way to Superior, Wisconsin. We just uh, replaced that line that was originally built in the 1960s uh, and, and put that new line into service in 2021 at $9 billion. It's the biggest project in Enbridge history. And in, in connection with that project, we established a training, employment and contracting strategies for First Nations that resulted in over $750 million in economic opportunities for those nations. And we had almost 1,000 individuals working in the field, which represented approximately 20% of our Canadian workforce on that project. So that's a big deal. And I, I, I think it's fair to say if we hadn't undertaken these efforts, the project probably wouldn't have been completed today. It was very important to the success of that project. I think a couple other things I'd like to touch on around this too is that um, the it's not only early engagement, but you also need to think about both assets like Capital Power has, which is their existing plants, plus the carbon capture infrastructure they're going to invest on top of it. These are long life assets, including the carbon sequestration hub that's going to go with it. So we're talking like 25, 30 plus years at a minimum. And so the relationship doesn't just start with, hey, getting this done. When we start looking at partnership opportunities like the Wabam and Carbon Hub, it's a long life partnership that will um, you know, extend well beyond probably my employment at Enbridge and Chief Morin's tenure as, as chief of, of the Enoch Cree First Nation. Um, it, it's important to point that out. It's just not a moment in time. It's this is a long distance relationship. And I think the other piece here is what infrastructure of this nation represents as an opportunity or uh, infrastructure of this uh this type represents as an opportunity for the nations so it isn't a volatile investment opportunity in, um, infrastructure energy type infrastructure typically has is underpinned by long-term contracts with stable returns this is the type of investment that nations need over the long haul to help support their communities so um, you know, it, it's a win-win for both sides, I think, here. Absolutely. Th and th thanks for fleshing that out a little bit more. Kate, I, I also want to uh, turn to you because, I, you know, I think capital power, I think about electricity. And one of the debates that we have had, certainly in Washington, D.C. lately, is 
although we want to move towards you know electric vehicles and other things we have to have a grid that can support that and we have to have the electricity and it really matters how that electricity is generated and whether that is also part of the carbon capture uh story as you look at you know the growth in electricity demand that's likely uh, maybe not as fast as we we all would like how how does capital power see itself building out and you mentioned the 2023 uh, that we're only eight years away from from 2030, that we've got 2050 on the horizon. But even even with that, we're going to need more electricity. And uh, just as as end users, so how do we manage both the growth, the reliability factor, and also addressing climate change? Good question, Chris. Um, the uh, the demand growth is sort of interesting on the one hand because we have made a lot of demand forecasts, all of which have been wrong, dead wrong. Uh, so for example, uh, we've uh, in the past forecasted that we would get an awful lot more emission reduction in the form of efficiency and um, uh, you know, sort of conservation and so on. But every time it, it, we make uh, inroads in respect of energy efficiency, uh, because for example, uh, the dishwasher that you buy today is significantly less uh, inefficient than one that you bought even five years ago. We, so we've made, we have made huge, huge inroads in that. We seem to be able to gobble it up, gobble up that extra capacity uh, by uh, inventing something that requires more energy. And just, just by way of example for that, uh, there is a huge increasing load in the world caused by car computers. And, and these are not electric vehicles. This is you know, the people that drive GMs with a truck that has OnStar and so on. Now, obviously, those things are, are to some extent supported by the vehicle motors, but there is there are huge banks of computers elsewhere that are looking after all of that sort of stuff. And, and uh, consumers don't think about that, but all of those things require a whole bunch of power. And we're just inventing more of them all the time. So demand, as you say, will increase. Uh, very significantly, and electrification obviously will add an awful lot to that. But um, uh, the other thing that people don't realize is that, uh, back to Adam's good points, uh, you you can't manufacture at this stage a wind turbine or a, a solar farm without petrochemicals. And you know, so people don't realize the, the things for which we use oil and gas, and for which we will have to continue to rely on them for some time. So in terms of power generation, uh, the other thing that's happened is we had a very unfortunate uh, uh, incident in Texas last winter, uh, and we've had uh, heat waves all over Western Canada and down the West Coast of the U.S. We've had fires, uh, tragic fires. We've had uh, cold snaps. Uh, so, for example, in our home province, uh, there was almost a month um, in which we were uh, colder than minus 40. And uh, it, people don't realize that the wind never blows on the coldest days or the hottest days. And the sun typically doesn't shine on uh, the hot or the coldest days either. And so uh, although we're, we're able to sort of patch small holes uh, with batteries in terms of the supply to meet the demand, uh, we are living in a world that is increasingly going to experience wild weather variations. Just, just things that we've never seen before, and they're going to last for more than the hours that batteries can help. And so for that reason, natural gas in Canada and the U.S., where we're lucky enough, unlike 
parts of Europe at the moment to have a plentiful supply. We're going to need that natural gas as an emergency backup for a very long time. We will in the future as renewables uh, sort of are proliferated, we're going to hope to use it an awful lot less, but we're going to need it there because um, the weather is going to get way more volatile as, as the climate changes. And so um, uh, what we're doing, as we said, is decarbonizing natural gas. We're going to start with point source, uh, so our, our smokestacks, if you will, and we're going to do things like this carbon hub. And, and then post-2030, we're going to, uh, uh, we have a, an experiment at the moment with direct air capture that Scotty was referring to. We are uh, capturing carbon at the moment from a smokestack and we are converting it into carbon nanotubes that we hope to sell to downstream emitters to help them reduce their downstream emissions as well as reducing ours. And if we can create a market for those nanotubes, then we hope to reduce the cost of capture, which we've talked about this morning, it's very expensive. And then we'll be able to have direct air capture units and then use things like the carbon hub, either for sequestration or for um, or sell the, the carbon products to end users. And so that's the big picture. That's the, that's the road from our perspective to 2050. Uh, and it does preserve affordability, reliability, and uh, of power, as well as reducing the environmental footprint. Oh, that's great. And, and I have one specific question. And I, I was looking a little bit about the, uh, the, ener the carbon hub. How does cement fit in? I hate, I hate to ask that concrete question, <laughs> but no, I was really, really just wondering like, so where, how does cement become part of the carbon capture, I guess it's utilization or how does that work? Adam described the hub part first. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm happy to jump in on this part. So in addition to Capital Power as kind of one of our industry partners on this hub, the other one is Lehigh Cement, which is a global cement producer and competes, you know, as with the others for, for large chunks of the market share in the global cement business. The interesting thing about cement is that um, it the CO2 emissions are, are generated in two places. One is is through the natural gas or, or fossil fuels burned to heat a kiln, which contains limestone. And what they're doing in that process is converting limestone to something called clinker by heating it up. And the cement, cement manufacturing process releases more co2 through the chemical conversion of limestone to clinker than it does from the fossil fuels combusted to heat that kiln and so this raises a really good point which is there is no critical credible path to the 2030 to 2050 emissions reduction goals in canada or globally that does not include ccus it has to be a part of the solution Cement's a great example. Um, the government of Canada just recently uh, released their ambitions to pursue a, a net zero electricity grids by 2035. In that plan for theirs, they still account for low emitting generation, which is the type of generation that Capital Power is pursuing, which is gas fire generation with carbon capture on it. They recognize it still has to be a part of the solution. Um, you know, as, as Kate mentioned, we're trying to reduce our reliance on gas, uh, natural gas sourced electricity, but it still needs to be a part of the makeup. And so as a result of that, we need to have projects like the Wobbin Carbon Hub, uh, be a part of that total solution. So we can actually hit those, those, those emissions, uh, ambitions and targets. 
So, so this is interesting, and I want to jump in on two, in two factors here. Let, I want to talk about the carbon hub, um, but before, but while we're talking about cement, uh, because people, you, you know, infrastructure is so important, and we take things like cement sometimes for granted. When Kate talked about, in addition to what you said, Adam, when Kate talked about nanotubes, so if you think about pulling carbon out of the air and putting it into like a little Tylenol pill capsule kind of thing, if that's what you want to picture. You could then mix that into cement, makes the cement stronger. You can mix it into other industrial uses too, potentially, right? And it makes the cement stronger. And it also now has the potential, and I have, you know, you'd have to run the numbers, but actually having a piece of infrastructure that's from traditionally high carbon emissions, but you're mixing in captured carbon into it. So you're actually lowering carbon footprint, maybe, or somewhat. Kate, have I got that? Have I butchered that? Or is that about what the vision is? Um, well, I would, the only thing that I would add to your explanation, Scotty, is that uh, so we are also working with Lehigh Cement uh, with our carbon nanotubes, and they are experimenting to see whether the mixture of carbon nanotubes into cement could allow them to use less cement for certain of their applications. And so they would avoid the emissions of whatever cement they don't have to make for those applications. And so so um, we like CCUS, and I agree with Adam. I mean, the IPCC, the International Environmental Agency, everybody agrees that CCUS is necessary in order for us to reach our climate goals. Um, and uh, we're, we're doing sort of uber cool things in uh, Alberta and elsewhere to make sure that we can take advantage of these low cost resources, natural resources that we have, but at the same time, do the right thing by the climate. And I just wanted to, to give a shout out to Chief Morin because I loved the language that he used about walking with Enbridge on this journey. We should all be walking together on this journey rather than uh, you know, debating the merits. We are all going in the same direction. Thanks, Scotty. No, thank you for that. And you know where my mind goes is is I, I got stuck on Kate's question. I think Kate and uh, Adam have done a better job of highlighting how important ESG is that ESG is than than even me. But Kate mentioned uh, her uh, the company's power plant is um, set up for thirty percent uh, hydrogen, and so you know I think we're talking about the carbon capture hubs around the city of Edmonton, uh, multiple hubs in Alberta, and I don't want to take anything away from this conversation, but that gets me excited too about. Um, the hydrogen hub that uh, the city of Edmonton is proposing. So, you know, I think, again, you have multiple players here. Um, Kate, uh, who's doing natural gas extraction and, and energy development. And then you got Adam, who builds the infrastructure. And then you got the First Nations talking about uh, their connection with the land and being better partners and helping invest, uh, invest directly at the top level and bottom levels. So I didn't think we get too much into that. And I don't want to take anything away from carbon capture, but uh, I definitely want to follow up with Kate in, in, in terms of the hydrogen hub that that's also uh, a part of this and ultimately that ESG conversation that we're having. Absolutely. Well, and and um, these conversations are great for for uh, sparking ideas. And, and actually, Chris, I think we're going to have to do another podcast on hydrogen uh, as a topic. And that's something I need to learn a lot about because I, I know how to pronounce it, but that's it. Let me, let's just um, maybe do one final round of conversations if we could for this one. Uh, and I, and I want to get, I want to get a little bit more into this carbon hub. I want to, I want you guys to describe it a little more. And as I understand it, if this Waberman carbon hub, as it's called, as you envision it, if it's, when it's developed, if it's developed, it'll sequester up to 4 million tons 
of CO2 a year, which could make it one of the largest, if not the largest in the world. So when we think about reaching we societies, reaching our goals um, for the benefit of the climate, we have to do these massive projects. So my question to you is, to you three, is, is this thing a done deal? Is it what, you know, what else needs to happen in addition to the partnership that the three of you have in order for this vision to become a reality? Um, or can, can we just, can we just put it in the bank? Is it happening? So Kate, can you, can you jump in on that? That's an excellent question, Scotty. Uh, the, as we talked about at the front of this conversation, th these uh, technologies are completely viable, but they are very expensive. And so uh, I can tell you that from Capital Power's perspective, quite candidly, this is not a done deal, only because uh, we're talking about uh, a cost, a capital cost here in excess of $2 billion. Uh, and uh, that means that we have to put in, into place financing, and the financing for our part of the project uh, would be uh, partly financed, partly partnership, and uh partly uh, offsets, carbon offsets, and so on. And, and the financing needs to be very, very strong before we'd have the confidence to actually pull the, pull the switch on this. But part of that is that um, there's so much uncertainty, Scotty and Chris, in respect of uh, environmental policy at the moment. Uh, we would really, really need to be very confident that uh, there won't be a significant policy change after we do pull that lever that's going to destroy the economics of this because our shareholders, frankly, would assassinate us. But now I'll hand it over to uh, Adam and Chief Warren. Yeah, I, thanks, Kate. I think um, I completely agree with what Kate is saying, is, which is, is, no, this isn't a done deal. But what gets me excited about both Enbridge and Capital Power and the nations here is what we're demonstrating is... Um, we're up for it. So the challenge is being put out there for the carbon emissions reductions. We're not sitting on our hands. We're not putting up roadblocks saying, no way, we can't do it. We're saying, we're, we're saying we can do it. Government of Canada or the province of Alberta in which we sit, provided you put the right, uh, you help us along the way. So we're going to need some help. This does not fly without government uh, support or uh, to make it happen. And so um, we are both of our organizations are putting money at risk by exploring and developing the plans to allow us to be first movers in the space. Um, as Kate had mentioned, the environmental policy, there, you know, there is some big black holes in our models that are going to get solved shortly here. The neat thing is that the government of Canada has announced that they are, in, in their last federal budget last year, said they were going to introduce an investment tax credit to help support CCUS. And so, I think we're all waiting in the eager anticipation for the next federal budget to come out and introduce that. And, and then we get to, you know, solve for a black hole in our economics and determine whether this is going to go forward or not. But we're demonstrating great progressive thinking here. Um, you know, I think I'd like to also touch on that, that Alberta is probably one of the best jurisdictions in North America to, to look at this. We have excellent geology. We get to leverage. You know, I, I'm going to stop there because I think we should ask a new question and we can answer that one later. <laughs> yeah, we'll come back. We'll finish up with Alberta. So, so Chief, you know, it might be your participation in this project that is the uh, glue that seals the deal in the in the in the eyes of government. Do you see it that way? And and how how much faith do you have 
um, in your ability to get this one over the goal line? Well, I thought it was a done deal. <laughs> <laughs> I say that uh, with, you know, I say that cheekily, I guess. Um, as a right at the end of the day, I mean, uh, you know, quite frankly, we haven't heard back from the RFP. We do expect uh, from the provincial RFP for the Carbon Hub, um, hopefully uh, within the next couple of weeks. So uh, are we the uh, the glue um, or the, the foundation that gets us over the, uh, the top on this one, um, the provincial government RFP and ultimately the federal investments that are needed? Um, here's how I would frame that. And I haven't touched on this in this conversation. So here in Canada, we have things called treaties. And uh, I know there's various treaties across for American tribes too as well. Um, treaties in Canada are a unique position. And, and ultimately, I'll, I'll do the Coles Notes version of it. We're in Treaty 6 territory. Um, it covers both the central part of the province of Alberta. And uh, treaties are, are one of the first laws of the land here, recognized in the Canadian Constitution. And um, First Nations are treaty people. But ultimately, Adam, Kate, and all Edmontonians, Albertans are treaty people too. And the defining aspect of treaty is that we work together. So, you know, with that principle, um, you know, I wouldn't categorize First Nations as the glue or the foundation of just the, the reserves themselves. My 2,700 members are, you know, my unique shareholder aspect, uh, maybe not the business type, but the family type as the glue that's going to get us over the top. But I would say that since we're all treaty people, um, that uh, the only way this is getting over the top is is through the foundational partnership that we we made together. And so that's that that is a defining factor in this RFP. Um, and uh, I, I I was telling the government of Alberta there there is literally nothing here that you can say no to, and the foundation of that is a treaty. At the end of the day, you know, yeah. yesterday we're recording this the day after St. Patrick's Day, and one of the things people say on St. Patrick's Day is if you're lucky enough to be Irish, you're lucky enough. I think this uh, cohort that we have on the podcast today might feel particularly fortunate and lucky to be in Alberta as a province. So, Adam, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the competitive advantage you see of just your uh, where you're headquartered, where this project is, and and maybe if you've got some some thoughts on the RFP that the chief talked about, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, so in terms of is this a done deal, we talked about what we need at the federal level in terms of the ITC. At the provincial level, we still need the poor space rights to be awarded for this project. So the government of Alberta has ran a, uh, a request for project proposals of the RFP that the chief mentioned. And so we have put our submission in. Um, it's a fairly robust uh, request process. So includes substantial due diligence on on the subsurface uh, and its ability to uh, accept and safely store CO2 volumes in there. And so the successful the successful award of horse-based rights under that RFPP process allows us to move forward and continue to further de-risk the, the geology there so that um, we can be ready in 2026, 20, 27 as CO2 uh, is captured and is ready from various emitters to be delivered into that hub to, to accept it and store it. So that's a bit on the RFPP process. And when do you think you'll hear? Sorry, sorry, Adam. When, and Chris, we may have to have the other bidders on just to keep Canusa Street on the up and up. So if they hear, if anybody out there is listening and you're, and you're in a competitive bid and you want to tell your story, you know, we welcome you. But, uh, but, uh, but I'm really happy to at least learn about it here. So Adam, when do you expect to hear? So the, the government has committed 
they recognize that timing is very important, that we have short timelines and that they need to, they need to move quickly in terms of awarding this force space. So they, they plan to start awarding in certain areas of the province by the end of this month. And, uh, you know, we're, we're feeling confident that we should have an answer in terms of the jurisdiction that we're looking at or the, the area of Alberta that we're looking for the space, for space rights for, um, you know, sometime by the middle of, uh, of this year. I hope you stick to your timeline, but, I, but it gets me thinking about another question. And maybe this is a, a round robin. I'd, I'd love, love to hear what you're thinking. How, how with a project like this, which has a long-term view, or at least a, a relatively long-term view, how do you future-proof this when you're planning? I mean, nobody expected a war in Ukraine. Inflation is kicking in in both our countries. There are a lot of factors that are creating uncertainty uh, every day. How can you take a project like this, which really has a longer time horizon than than some, um, and, and try to insulate it from all those shockwaves? Where's, where's the... It, opportunity maybe to get some things like permitting to be expedited or something so that you can continue to pursue it or or do you think a project like this could be subject to changing circumstances so the whole thing just has to get put on on the shelf oh christopher my friend you only ask the easy questions asking private sector leaders to future proof something against government politics i don't know that might be the hardest question of them all does anybody want to take a shot at that here's here's the politic answer to that question um the these technologies that we're hoping to be able to um invoke to help us meet our 2030 goals are still not yet economic um it, given the policies of the government including the carbon tax and offsets and so on uh they would probably absent no other uh, interventions or policy changes become economic sometime after 2030. Um, and so, uh, if the government wants these emission reductions now, and I think it does, I hope it does. I mean, as a, an Albertan and a Canadian, I hope it does. Uh, then, uh, we will need government support. Uh, and that will be not just in the form of the ITC that Adam mentioned. It will also be in the form of, uh, I think, Probably bilateral contractual assurances that, uh, that would hold us harmless from, uh, any policy change that destroyed the economics of these, uh, projects. And, and so we would be asking for that too from government. And they seem, uh, uh let me put it this way. They haven't really vomited all over that idea yet. They're quite interested. Uh, so, uh, fingers crossed. Maybe, thanks everybody. This has been so fascinating. Maybe I'll just ask one quick last one. Chris, I don't know if you've got a quick last one, but, but we started talking, we started this conversation, uh, talking about relationships and how Billy and Adam met and Banff and Kate and I have known each other for a long time. What's, I, I just want to ask a, uh, a, a lighthearted question, but it's real. What's your favorite thing about this trilateral partnership that you have? What's the, what's the best thing about it? Chief, you want to start? It's the potential. So, you know, uh, Enoch Nation again, is that 2,700 person uh, community and, you know, uh, kind of huge family business in that regard. That's my shoulders are truly all basically family. But uh, again, like I like the space that, you know, partnerships with Enbridge and partnerships with Capital Power 
allow us to, you know, we're called First Nations. We truly believe we're, we're nations in, in a unique space in Canada. And if you want to be a nation, you got to go beyond your own borders and do business. So, you know, Adam's doing business in, in, um, in, in the United States. So is Kate. Uh, we did a cross-border bond um, with our other gaming operation. And uh, the world is becoming increasingly smaller through globalization. And, um, you know, First Nations don't have to be left behind if we're welcome to these spaces uh, and doing business across even international uh, boundaries, such as the Canadian-American one. So, you know, I get excited about, like, where does this conversation even go greenfield in terms of, you know, what level of partnership can we be doing beyond just even the local uh, region as well uh, to give us a competitive advantage as a region, but also just as First Nations and companies. Absolutely. How about you, Adam? What's your favorite thing about this partnership? A few words come to mind. Enthusiasm and precedent setting. I think uh, when I look inside my organization, uh, both below me and above me at the executive level, the support and, and, and the enthusiasm of everybody to be a part of this, the enthusiasm from the nations, from each of the chiefs to make set aside the time to be a part of this, the enthusiasm from capital power as we as we you know rolled out plans to include indigenous engagement on this is is huge right it's uh, everybody wants to chip in and be a part of this and and it's you know it's the potential to set new precedents both on uh indigenous participation in projects as well as setting precedents in terms of uh first mover decarbonization activities thanks adam last word goes to the honorable kate chisholm well, I couldn't agree more with Adam and Chief Morin. Uh, the thing that excites me most about this is the vision, uh, because this is a, pl- a blueprint for something that could be repeated again and again and again. And, and we are taking, we're talking about taking um, almost, uh, let's say, four or five megatons of carbon out of, out of the air uh, this decade with this project and, and possibly more in the future. And, and uh, you know, for those of you that don't know, that is a huge number. That is a huge number. Uh, and so if we can make this work, if, if this is successful, uh, I look forward to doing this over and over again uh, in other parts of our business. Thanks, Kate. Thanks all three of you. I learned a lot today. Um, and one of the things I learned today is about core space rights. So uh, that's a new one for me. And when you're talking about carbon capture, utilization and storage, you got to know about poor space rights. So Chris, we've expanded, or at least I've expanded my vocabulary today. So I, uh, I'll give you the last way of saying thank you. But I just, for me, thanks very much to all three of you. I agree. And, and I have to say, when I heard poor space, I was thinking of, you know, a glass of beer. Is there a little poor space I could get a bit more in there? Um, so clearly, my mind. It's all about perspective. <laughs> exactly. But Kate Chisholm from Capital Power, Adam Chalky from Enbridge, and Chief Billy Morin from the Enoch Cree Nation, thank you very much. This was an amazing discussion. I learned a lot as well. And uh, we'll have you back anytime here on Canusa Street. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Hey, thank hey. you. It was great. All, all right. right. Well, we really did learn a lot, Chris. And, uh, you know, there's so much more that we could have discussed when Kate was talking about um, forests and trees and all of that. I was thinking about uh, our last podcast where we talked to the forest products folks. And the thing that I didn't realize is besides forests being carbon sinks, 
um, or trees being giant carbon-sucking machines, different than the carbon-sucking machines we were talking about today. But we also learned about forest fires. And I didn't think of that as a big carbon event, a forest fire. And yet it is. Of course it is. It makes sense. So when you, you know, you sort of link together these podcasts we have, and, and one day we're talking about forests when they catch fire and when there are weather events, all the more reason you got to have carbon hubs. We got to get that carbon out of the atmosphere. We've got to figure out what to do with it. And this trilateral partnership, if you will, between a First Nation and, and an infrastructure company and a power company um, sounds pretty innovative to me, Chris. And I think, I think in the United States, we may learn something uh, from Canada if this project goes forward. I think you're right. And so often when we're talking about climate change, um, what the story is of good guys, bad guys, you know, everyone arrayed against each other, and it's a struggle for who's going to lead the future. But what's amazing, and I, this isn't the only conversation with, with Canadians that we've had like this, it, it's impressive how pragmatic uh, some of the players are. They, they move beyond the discussion of should we, shouldn't we on climate change, or is it real, is it fake, to a place where it's complicated. There are, there are layers and problems to solve that are engineering, uh, in the case of, of the story today, the treaty rights and how we interpret the obligations we all have and how we reconcile that in a final project. But complex as it is, with the right attitude and a spirit of, of trying to work together, which we certainly heard from our guests today, you can actually make progress. And uh, great antidote to the sort of doom and gloom or the feeling that that these problems are insurmountable, uh, that we often get in the media and elsewhere. There, you can get it done. And the Canadians that we talked to today, but also on some of our other podcasts, showed us how. That's right. You can get her done, Chris. That's right. And you know what? On Canusa Street, the sidewalks along Canusa Street that are made of cement with carbon nanotubes, thanks to Capital Power's technology, um, are going to be a piece of infrastructure that helps green our economy. How about that? How about tying that up with a bow? I, I think you are on your way to becoming the mayor of Canusa Street. Uh, I like <laughs> to serve on go. the city council. How's that? <laughs> I think we can. I think we can be co-mayors. Uh, Great to see you as always, my friend. Great to see you too. Um, we'll be back again soon with even more interesting discussions on this interface between Canada, the United States that we call Canusa Street. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.